Welcome to another Climate Tech Podcast, interviews with the people trying to save us from ourselves. You probably haven't yet heard of Glenn Hurwitz and his organization Mighty Earth, but my guess is you'll be hearing those names much more in the future. Mighty Earth is a global advocacy organization that combines the influence of large established organizations with the agility and grit of grassroots activists and draws on influences ranging from Napoleon to Netflix. I believe they're one of the most important voices of this generation and show the kind of courage we need from climate advocates. I reached Glenn in Washington, D.C. I'm Ryan Grant-Little. Thanks for being here. Glenn, welcome to the podcast. Uh, It's great to be here. Thank you. What an honor. So you're the founder and CEO of Mighty Earth. Can you talk a bit about what the organization does and why you started it? Yeah, uh, Mighty Earth is a global advocacy organization. Uh, we aspire to be the most effective environmental advocacy organization in the world. And I founded it really because we saw a need for an entrepreneurial, results-focused organization working on the biggest challenges that were not getting enough attention. So for us, first and foremost, amongst those was nature. It's 37% of the solution to climate change and yet get something around only 3% of the funding. And of course, you know, nature is also goes beyond climate change. It is, you know, how we're going to protect the animals and plants that are vital to life on earth. And so, you know, to me it's even bigger than climate change as big as that is. We also work on other areas like industrial decarbonization which accounts for 25% of global climate pollution but until relatively recently was getting very little attention. And so, you know, we strive to be very agile. We bring the best of the business world into the way we run our organization. We also draw from classical military strategy and, of course, you know, social change theory to run campaigns that can have a transformative impact on the biggest industries in the world. That's fascinating. Do you have a business or military background or what inspired you to draw from those disciplines? Well, I'm fascinated by military history, and I find it very applicable to the campaign work that I do. So, you know, just to give you one example, Napoleon is probably the greatest military strategist in history, not always a great governor of lands and did some terrible things. But, you know, if you look at his military career from very early days, he had this simple brilliance. And I think that's in many ways what we aspire to, too, as a broad principle. But, you know, one of the key military strategies that he applied rigorously was concentration of force. So when he was relatively junior, he constantly faced opponents who had much larger armies than he did. But they made the mistake of dividing their forces. They would send one army over to capture territory in one direction and in another way. And what Napoleon did, he kept his armies together and he would go after one army first they sometimes he would actually have more numbers once the opponents were divided. He would beat them. He was also, you know, a great tactician and very agile. And then he would run quickly to capture the other army. And in that way, he was able to overcome forces many times the size of his. And that's how his legend built and partly how he gained such prominence. And so that's, you know, for us, we operate in a very target-rich environment. There are so many companies responsible for environmental destruction. We're pulled in a lot of directions. I think that's a temptation that afflicts anybody, not only in the campaign space, but really in business or in life. So we try to be as disciplined as we can in focusing on the key companies or policymakers. In our work to transform industries, typically that means tackling the largest company in an industry first. 
that might be counterintuitive. I think sometimes people say, oh, you should go after, you know, the one that's already innovative, that's doing the best, maybe a little smaller, has a small penetration. I think that's historically what a lot of environmental groups have done. Our experience is that the largest company in the industry sets the terms of the industry. If you can change them, it might be really hard, but if you can change them, you can get everybody else to follow relatively easily. It's very hard for companies to resist the competitive pressure of a dominant player who is adopting stronger standards. That's fascinating. I'm, I'm wondering also on the topic of focusing efforts, because you're, as you say, you work in a target-rich environment and you're working on topics ranging from palm oil to aluminum production to apes and, and much, much more. How do you decide where to focus and when? And can you are you running all of these campaigns simultaneously? We do run a lot of campaigns simultaneously. I mean, I'm not personally running them. I guess I, I oversee it all. We have a great team. And one of the things we've purposely done to draw on your question about business leadership and business learning from business, we've really tried to build a team, especially at the leadership level, of very talented individuals who can navigate without much control so that they are, we call it the informed captain model. And, you know, my job as the organization leader and their job as team leaders is to lead by context, provide the information about our goals, what's happening in the outside world, strategic direction, funding, political info, intelligence, and then give them a lot of leeway to make their own decisions. Now, that requires hiring incredibly talented people who are able to navigate with confidence themselves. And that's part a lot of what we do. So, yes, we work on a lot of issues. I think we don't work on issues where there's a lot of great work already happening at scale. So for instance, we haven't done that much on coal in electric utilities. Not that it's not a very important issue, but rather there's organizations like Sierra Club, Bloomberg Philanthropies, many, many other, Project Sunrise, many others who have been doing excellent work, funded quite generously for many years and are getting results you know, you've seen a dramatic decline in use of coal power in the United States, and that's spreading. In contrast, some of the issues you named are not getting anywhere near enough attention. So I spoke about nature broadly is wildly underinvested in. I mean, the extinction crisis is, scientists believe, 10 times more severe than the climate crisis, as bad as that is, and as freaked out as I am about that. And so, you know, we're drawn to that. I think especially the nature world has been dominated by wonks. I think, you know, in some ways, science is a great strength of the environmental movement. And in some ways, scientists can be a weakness of it because they don't naturally gravitate to political strategy, or they think that because they know so much about science, they can do political strategy. They don't think about how to effectively communicate. It's not necessarily always a, a topmost priority for them. And so, you know, we certainly draw on the best scientists and we work with a lot of scientists, but we're trying to bring something different. So, you know, I look at issues like the meat industry, you know, causes more pollution than the entire global transportation sector. I often say, you know, electric vehicles are a big deal. Meat is an even bigger deal. And for many years, we were really quite lonely in trying to tackle their deforestation, their lack of regenerative agriculture practices, not shifting to alternative protein. I think our, fortunately, we've got in a certain scale now, but nowhere near big enough to tackle this challenge. And there are good organizations as well, working at it from different perspectives, like Good Food Institute on the all proteins and others working on these different components. But what we try to do is really, and more broadly, I think there's a real gap in advocacy. So I think, you know, much of this work is funded by philanthropies and the large climate philanthropies tend to have a very technocratic orientation. They 
are interested in temperamentally. They want to fund studies, research, policy. In my view, in general, what we are lacking is not great ideas and powerful solutions. It's rather the political will to get there. This is not a new phenomenon, but it is one that I think is underrecognized. You know, where you have political leadership, you know, as we've had with President Biden, you can get the Inflation Reduction Act, which is causing an enormous shift in how the United States economy runs and is driving decarbonization both in our country and globally through achieving economies of scale. That would not have been possible without determined political effort and funding for politics. You know, but that's mostly going to energy and transportation, which is all really important. I find in the nature world in particular, you know, the people who understand nature's importance very often don't get politics or advocacy, or if they do get it, they don't see themselves in it. And so the consequence is, you know, we see dozens of studies come out pointing to the fact that we need to value nature, make trees worth more alive than dead, that point out the value of nature to climate, but that doesn't necessarily change the dynamics. It doesn't cause a company like JBS or Cargill to change the way that it is doing business. It doesn't cause governments to adopt better policies to protect nature, whether by you know creating new protected areas or banning trade in products related to deforestation. That all requires a lot of political and organizing. So there's not enough of that. We've taken on these challenging tasks of doing it in a you know relatively resource scarce funding environment. And so what the challenge that sets for us is we have to punch above our weight. And that's really our goal. I work with a lot of companies who plan to open up shop in or expand across Europe. My one big piece of advice, don't fall into the trap of setting up a new entity right away. Instead, talk to my friends at Paracar, who can help you get up and running without all the costs, not to mention the legal and HR hassle. When I was hiring in different EU countries, I wanted my team to focus on their work, not on the country's bureaucracy. After interviewing a half dozen international expansion firms, I chose Paracar because they were by far the most knowledgeable and they're great people. Whether you're a large multinational looking to expand abroad, a small business looking for the right talent, or a contractor, they'll sort it out. Book a free, no-obligation consultation right now at paracar.eu slash climate. That's P-A-R-A-K-A-R dot E-U slash climate. Yeah, a lot of the a lot of my week goes to working with scientists, helping them to translate kind of the things that they know and the solutions they have into stories that other people can use and policymakers can understand and that the public cares about. It's it is definitely a gap. And as you say, the the knowledge is there to a large extent, right? This isn't a shortage of ideas and technology. It's a shortage of uh, political will and understanding to a large extent. You talk about the change that Mighty Earth makes as being a perfect storm of campaigns, communication, and practical engagement with decision makers. And I wonder, you talked a little bit about this already with, I think you called it informed captains, but what this kind of orchestration of that perfect storm looks like. So how do you keep track of all these different campaigns? Do you have people leading different topics? And kind of what does that process look like? How does it look to make that, you know, alternative sausage? (laughs) Yeah, well, the alternative sausage, you know, it's surprisingly smooth. And I think, unlike bills being hashed out here in DC, the closer you get, the cooler it looks and the more inspiring it is. So 
we try to be rigorous at least about you know the process. So we have each of our campaigns is led by a relatively typically a relatively senior person who's got a lot of experience, and then they will have staff under them. And then we have a lot of partners. So we fund nonprofit organizations with grants, particularly in developing countries, as well as you know we have contractors and others who are helping us out. And we do brainstorms that bring in you know different parts of our organization, communications, grassroots and leadership to develop the strategy. We do a lot of research to figure out what are the most powerful levers. So, you know, right now we are working on the meat industry, as I mentioned, and we did a significant amount of investigation to figure out which are the companies that have the most power to move the industry. And we developed this great map showing, you know, how retailers could move some of the largest meat companies, what government policies might change them and where it was politically feasible to do that. It requires an understanding of the supply chain. But you know, when you do that, I think you find unexpected outcomes sometimes or lesser known approaches that if you follow them, can really supercharge it. So with the meat industry, so the, the most important companies to shift are really JBS, Cargill, and Bungie. They're three companies, Cargill and Bungie are American. JBS is Brazil-based, but the third largest meat company in the United States. And you might think that it's, you know, the big supermarkets and retail companies in the United States that would be able to move them. Now, while there's some truth in that, and those are important, what we found was there's actually two French companies had the biggest influence over the meat companies, especially when it came to stopping deforestation. So about 80%, 85% of beef in Latin America, where the deforestation is happening, is sold domestically. So is very little is exported to the United States because we produce so much meat here. So what we found was the two biggest supermarket chains in Brazil, Carrefour and Casino and their subsidiaries are the key companies that can actually influence JBS and some of the others to change. So what we've done is we've launched a big campaign in France and a big campaign in Brazil, and there's also a lot of Carrefour in Spain. And so these are probably not companies that most Americans or frankly, American philanthropists have heard of but they're incredibly important. And so we focused our media, our advertising, our grassroots actions in France and in Brazil to move those companies. And you know, we just had this amazing TV story on France 24 the other day where our French director and uh, our Brazil colleague were showing how they could go to a supermarket, scan a barcode of a package of beef and figure out if that beef came from a slaughterhouse connected to illegal deforestation, land grabbing from JBS or other companies. And then they were able to say, okay, Carrefour, despite all your promises, you're still selling beef that is connected to this deforestation. Now, you know, the interesting thing is, and the challenge it creates, we are going after the most powerful levers. I think getting people in the general public, donors to understand that tackling something in France and Brazil and these sophisticated strategies really is what may make a difference can be a little challenging because nobody's heard of these brand names, right? And so that's part of our communications challenges, say, you know, supporting us, supporting our volunteers, supporting our staff in doing this work can have outsized impact, but it may be on targets that are incredibly important, but rather obscure to an American. Gilberto Tomazzoni, the CEO of JBS, gave a disastrous interview at the New York Climate Week a few weeks ago where he reiterated claims, their net zero claims, which they've basically been forbidden from pushing because they're They've been revealed to be greenwashing. But I, what, in watching that interview, I was amazed at just 
really felt like he didn't care to a large extent, right? I mean, it was so obvious the questions he's being asked. And I mean, just the insouciance that he showed about some of these questions. And I wonder, you know, are we winning the battle against groups like that? You've called their IPO as or their upcoming potential IPO as the biggest climate risk IPO in history. Where are the points of leverage? So it's the grocery stores. Where else? Is anyone else listening to this? Yeah. So you know, just so people have the background, because I, you know, I find these meat producers are not well known. JBS is this enormous company. It's the biggest meat company in the world. It is a Brazil-based company. It's the largest driver of deforestation across South America. And it is the third largest meat company in the United States. Its owners and the company itself have this terrible history of corruption on top of all the environmental abuse and land grabbing from indigenous people. So the two owners of the company, Wesley and Josely Batista, were imprisoned in Brazil because they and their companies bribed the president of Brazil and federal government at an enormous scale. The SEC and the U.S. Department of Justice fined JBS about $256 million just in 2020 for their participation in a variety of corruption schemes, including the one, ones that led to their acquisition of Pilgrim's Pride, another major U.S. meat company. What's interesting is even though this company is based in Brazil, they actually get around 49% of their profits in the United States. And they want to expand their access to the U.S. market. They also want to expand their access to U.S. capital markets. So they are trying to get listed on the New York Stock Exchange. And over the long term, this could allow them to supercharge their financing, to keep growing their herd, pouring more climate pollution into the atmosphere. They already are off the charts in terms of you know the amount of climate pollution they cause relative to any other food or agriculture company. They have more pollution than the entire country of Spain. So this is one company operating at this enormous scale. Needless to say, they have a lot of political influence as well, which is why we're focused on them. Because you know we think if we can change them, it's easier to get different governments, whether in Brazil or Europe or United States, to improve their environmental protection because they won't have JBS lobbying them to weaken those areas. And this IPO, though, in the short term is a little different for most. The immediate purpose is to have the founding family of the company, the Batistas, who currently own you know around 45% of the shares to get up to 85% control. So they're going to shift from class A shares to class B shares and concentrate the voting power of the company. We're really concerned about this because it means that independent investors will have less of a voice in how the company runs. So we've asked the SEC to stop the listing it's an unusual step. However, it's also unusual to have a public company in the United States run by people who are so recently fined enormous amounts of money by the DOJ, by the SEC for corruption on a grand scale. Of course, we filed an earlier SEC complaint against JBS in January because they had issued such utterly misleading climate information. You know, they claim to be on a pathway to net zero by 2040, even as they're their cattle and other meat processing herds grow. They have not put out honest information about the climate. And that, that's misleading to investors. They raised $3 billion in so-called sustainability linked bonds based on what we believe is utterly false information that we've documented extensively with the SEC. So this IPO is an unusually significant opportunity for investors to have influence, for the SEC to have influence you know, and also really to get leverage over JBS so it can improve its environmental policies, so it can reduce corruption. 
it was great to have that David Gellis, the New York Times uh, journalist, you know, we were able to brief him in advance about all the issues JBS was facing. Our volunteers on short notice in New York City ran and did an inter- event outside the interview. And yeah, I mean, I think Tomazzoni was just pummeled on stage. I hope we need JBS to change. Now, maybe that change comes because DOJ and SEC and other regulatory authorities around the world, including in Brazil, step in and say, you know, and shut down the company. I don't know, you know, to what degree that will happen. I think they will pressure them. But we actually, what we really need JBS to do is ban and seriously monitor deforestation throughout supply chain to require regenerative agriculture practices and to shift to a greater percentage of alternative proteins so it can reduce the enormous impact that meat has, which in case listeners don't know, you know, typically a plant-based diet, cultivated protein diet is like about 10% of the land use and climate impact of meat. And so we're trying to get to a point where by 2030, if 10% of the world's protein is alternative protein, that will create the economics of scale that allows a bigger transition. But it really needs companies like JBS to be part of that transformation. And so we are pummeling them from different directions, but in the hopes that they will change. And, you know, we do that. We talk to JBS, even as we're beating up on them to say, here are the solutions. Now, the frustrating thing in the meat industry is that change has not happened. They have not as much as it has in other industries. They have not been as open-minded. So when we tackled palm oil and rubber and our allies worked on pulp and paper, we had this enormous success in part because, you know, it took campaigns. It took a lot of pressure from their customers and investors. But like I sat down with the head of Asia's largest agribusiness, which has controlled 45% of the global palm oil industry. And, you know, I got there because we were bringing serious pressure on them from customers and investors. But once I was in the room with him, he was quite open-minded about the fact that they could expand palm oil onto previously deforested land instead of native ecosystems and quickly set a policy. And this is this is a Chinese company, essentially, ethnically Chinese, doing most of its business with China, based in Singapore. Nobody's ever heard of it. And while it did take pressure, once they decided to change, they actually implemented it. And we were able to get 90% of the palm oil industry signed up to the same standards within a year. Our allies did the same thing on pulp and paper. We did the same thing on rubber. And there's been this 90% plus decline in deforestation for all of these commodities in Southeast Asia. It's a gigaton scale climate win. And on the one hand, I think we did a great job campaigning. On the other hand, I think we were maybe a little lucky that the leadership, the Asian leadership was strong. And as American, it's very disappointing to me when I see American companies like Cargill, like Bungie, like Costco on the retail side, not showing the same leadership that Chinese companies did. I like, I'm, I'm pretty ashamed. You know, I don't like to say that, but it's, it's sadly true. Yeah, that's totally fair. I mean, it's courageous work that you're doing. I have some experience with the meatpacking industry. I ran a biogas company in the mid 2000s and our primary suppliers are are slaughterhouses providing basically the stuff that doesn't go to rendering or to food. And I had some interesting conversations there, you know, once sitting at a table at a beef slaughterhouse and just as uh, they were about to sign a contract for tankers of blood that we were going to be taking, he stopped and said, now, if a tanker gets left overnight in the parking lot and we get a summons from the Ministry of Environment, just so you know, you'll end up like the Crabtree brothers. And the next time you start your truck will be the last. Wow. And I didn't think to mention that, well, I drive an Audi A3, but uh, I think the point was <laughs> was uh, uh, well taken. And you know that happened a couple of times when I was working in that industry that you know I think where the business is dealing with killing large mammals, the um, (laughs) 
the sanctity of human life might not be top of the list. And I wonder, you know, I'm sure you deal with some concerted campaigns of pushback from companies. Do you ever worry for your safety or the safety of your team? So I think, you know, we have a certain immunity in terms of our own team, maybe not immunity, but like, I think, you know, the companies that we tackle are reluctant to go after a US-based organization. I think, you know, we are pretty well politically connected in the United States, especially at the top levels of the Biden administration and Congress. And, you know, our colleagues in Europe, in many cases, are equally well connected in, in Europe and Brazil and Japan and elsewhere. So I think the risk is not so much for us. We have at times faced certain risk. And we do have big security protocols and security consultants to manage that and make sure that people are safe. I think the bigger risk is sometimes to partners on the ground and civil society organizations on the front lines who may not even be like so directly connected to us, but you know, they're the people that we're trying to help and support. And they are on the front lines. There's, you know, when it comes to protecting nature. There's all these studies that show, particularly in Latin America, that where you have indigenous people with control over their lands and with rights to their lands, usually the conservation outcomes are way better because they are where they are willing to defend their lands. They are the best defenders. And so, you know, we support them. And a lot of times they don't have that much political power because of the contempt that big meat businesses or logging businesses or the governments have towards them. And because they're living out in the forest without access to the corridors of power. What we are able to do with our campaigns is change that dynamic very often. And so we're able to say to corporate decision makers and government policymakers, you need to listen to the indigenous people who your operations are affecting or who this policy will affect. So one of our biggest successes with, with a lot of other organizations in the past year was passing a law in Europe called the EU deforestation regulation. It bans trade in products of deforestation. It's a really big deal. It gives legal force to the voluntary policies that we've been successful in, in instituting. And, you know, I think part of the reason that came about was we were able to take representatives of indigenous groups, uh, local civil society to Brussels to hear about what they thought the benefits of this policy would be in disincentivizing deforestation and land grabbing. That was countervailing pressure to the governments of some of these countries and to big business, meat industry, cocoa industry, and others who were lobbying against the law. The European policymakers were able to hear from people from those countries who were directly affected by this proposed policy that'd be beneficial. And I think that's one of the reasons it passed. Also, you know, we are able to, when we influence companies, we insist as part of their policy and part of their practice that they invite indigenous groups in and they listen to them and they get permission to operate in their territories. I think one of the proudest moments for me is when that happens, you know, I remember I was in Gabon and we'd done this very sophisticated campaign involving the Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund, banks, companies all over the world to influence this company that was operating there and destroying a lot of forest. And we succeeded in getting them to stop deforestation. I went to Gabon to meet different government ministers and our local partners. And the company only wanted me to go meet with these officials. And I said, guys, I'm going to fly back to the United States if our local partners who know much more than I do about what's needed in Gabon, what the government policies are, how this should be implemented than I do. Because they had all these phone calls back and forth for an hour, you know, could he, he bring them or not? And they finally, of course, said yes. And we bring them. And, you know, there was a lot of suspicion between the two groups. But actually, I was able to step back because our partners were way better suited than me to making the case. And we, you know, broadly been able to put them in the lead. And so that's when it works well. And that's the dynamic that ultimately we're trying to achieve. 
yeah, sometimes it's just about bringing the right people in, into the room and stepping back. <laughs> yeah. And, well, and I think that's absolutely right. But I think it's also about having the political leverage to make that happen. Yeah. Because, you know, when I in Gabon, for instance, I remember our partner said, they were like, we don't fully understand how you did this. I mean, you're this organization, you're based in Washington, D.C. You launched this big campaign in Singapore on the Sovereign Wealth Fund. You're working in Europe. You're working in Japan on these banks. And somehow you got this company that we've been working to change for many years to change. And it's great. And so, you know, they felt for the first time that they had real access to decision makers. And I think what we can do is change that balance of power on the ground so that they can have real influence. You do some work in the financial industry as well. I saw that Barclays is a target, basically. And uh, on a, a previous episode, I talked to the founder of Mother Tree, who is calculating the CO2 footprint of bank accounts at, and Barclays tops. Basically, it's number one bank for having the worst, you know, if you have an account there, you have the worst CO2 footprint, basically, out of any bank. That's so interesting. I will check that out. I was not aware of that, actually. And that's a powerful talking point for a campaign. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, he's, of course, got like a, a calculator as well and provides alternative banks. And there are, you know, ways basically that you can reduce your, you know, by choosing one bank over another, you can reduce your carbon footprint by 80% in some cases. And it's it's really astounding, actually. The numbers, you know, and the tons of CO2, if you've got, especially if you're a company and you've got a substantial amount of money in a current account. So, yeah, that was a, an eye opener for me as well. You talked about, you know, being in touch with investors in Singapore, working in Gabon, being based in Washington, D.C., you know, you're working politically and, and on the ground in South America. I'm curious, what does an average day look like for you? Or is there such thing? There's not really an average day for me. I think that's probably a good thing because we try to be dynamic and entrepreneurial and nimble. If I'm here, I'm currently at our at our HQ, Mighty Earth Plaza, which is actually just a rented space in a WeWork. But, <laughs> you know, so one of the good things is we've been able to grow a bit. And with that scale, that has freed me up more to do things like talk to you and do more external communication and tell the story of what Mighty Earth is doing. You know, I do have to spend a lot of time fundraising. So we are primarily funded by philanthropy right now. We are really trying to recruit individual donors to diversify because the thing with philanthropies is they're great. And sometimes they give large grants, but it tends to be restricted funds. So we can't jump on new opportunities that are really important or, you know, have money salted away for a rainy day. And that can be really disruptive and risky if you have a delay in disbursement of a grant you know, governments in particular that give give climate fund. Like we've had, I've had a situation where we had a year long delay in receiving disbursement. It's incredibly hard for an NGO to navigate that. So we're trying, one of our priorities is, you know, we welcome the big donations from major philanthropies. I spent a lot of time with them and that's great and fuels our work, but we really need individuals to contribute as well. So if anybody's listening and wants to support us, you can go to mightyearth.org slash donate and contribute on a monthly basis or one time, we really welcome it. And it's, and it's, you know, I often say that's that money is like three times as valuable as a restricted grant. So I, I do spend a lot of time, you know, both traveling and, you know, on the phone with philanthropies and individual donors, you know, and then I'm running an organization. So I'm meeting with our teams. We have a great vice president of programs who leads our programmatic work, and he's overseeing that day to day. But the teams often will bring me in for brainstorms where, there's a, you know, they, based on my experience, I think I might have a good idea occasionally. And then on the opera, you know, a lot of times you have to oversee the operations, the finance to make sure all of that is really rigorous. And so, 
as we've grown, we've been able to improve and scale our teams on that front. And so that's freed me up a bit more. But I do find a CEO, you like you always have to keep your eye on that. And you know, one of the things that we say, I just every year I give a state of mighty earth presentation at our global retreat, which just happened. And I said, we have to make sure that our operations and finance team keep ahead of our overall growth. And so we're making a lot of investments to make sure that happens. But yeah, I really am trying to do as much external communications as possible and use the platform that I have to spread that word. I will say, you know, at its core, I think where Mighty Earth has had success is due to our culture. I think we really are playing an unusual role in being so nimble and being able to jump on these challenges. And that means that, you know, even though our budget is modest, we are able to tackle some of the biggest companies in the world and often win. And so I will say, just to give some credit, you know, you were asking earlier about lessons from the business world. We drew a lot from Netflix. They have this culture of freedom and responsibility. They really prize some of the same things we do, results orientation, nimbleness, entrepreneurialism on their teams. They're not their CEO and their senior leadership does not micromanage. And so those were values that we already had. And then I read a book written by the founder of Netflix and his co-author named Aaron Meyer, a professor at the NC Business School, called No Rules Rules. And it spoke to me because they had the same values, but they had codified the culture to a much greater degree than we had. And so we've taken their learnings and really instituted it throughout the organization. So it's things like informed captain, where we lead by context, not by control. It's highly aligned, loosely coupled. So we want to make sure there's good communication throughout the organization so that People know what others are doing and where their work might intersect, but that they're not having to check in on specific tactical implementation with huge numbers of teams so they can move really fast. We try to eliminate process wherever we can. So that's, and we can do that because we have such talented people who can make good decisions on their own. There are areas where we need to be really rigorous in process. I mentioned finance and compliance. And so, you know, it's an interesting tension where we want to have this very free entrepreneurial culture on one hand, and then also make sure that we are complying with all the different nonprofit requirements that one faces. And I think tending to that culture, cultivating it, building it, setting a good example, rewarding people who live up to it is so important. We just gave gave award at our retreat as we do every year to uh, the ideal team player, the person who great at most personifies the values of an ideal team player, which are humble, hungry, and smart. And I think showcasing that and rewarding people who demonstrate those skills is really valuable. We have this rule, no brilliant jerks. And I think we're very lucky right now that we don't have brilliant jerks on our team. And we've had to you know, make hiring choices where sometimes you find somebody who's really smart, really talented, really expert, but you know maybe they're not a jerk, but they may not have the humility to thrive in an organization. And I think you need, I think in my experience, at least you know, in our organization, like you need a true selflessness and dedication to the mission in order to succeed. Because if you're really just self-seeking, it's hard to be as collaborative as you need to be in a culture that's as impact-focused as we are. I 100% agree. And hungry, humble, and smart are also my hiring criteria. And you build amazing teams with that. It's There's no no room for the toxic high performer. It just doesn't work. And to your point about restricted funding, you know, I ran an NGO when I was in my early 20s and I used to dream about this, right? Because you get, it rewires your brain as you try to look for ways to like, how can we make turning the electricity on and, you know, buying desks and paper clips into a project? 
because yeah. it's like, you know, and, and the whole system kind of around philanthropy is a bit broken in that sense, where instead of looking at kind of the the impact that you're creating with funding and just going from like this money to this impact, it's always about what are you spending on administration versus projects? And it forces you to try to kind of package things as projects which you know doesn't serve kind of anyone and there's still a legacy of that sticking around some of the more kind of cutting edge funders i think are shifting on that thinking but you still see a lot of it yeah absolutely you know i would say if you know any of any of those cutting edge funders please send them our direction <laughs> i think there's a lot of lip service to the idea of trust based philanthropy but in practice we don't see it at least in the climate world that much at least from the larger philanthropies and so you know, I think this is a real challenge for the sector. And in some ways, I see some movement in the opposite direction, actually, from the big philanthropies. Oh, no. And they, you know, one of the things that's very fashionable, it can be useful. It depends how well it's implemented. Our funders collaborate, where you have a lot of different philanthropies funding a sort of single grant making entity. I've seen it done well where there's excellent leadership. And then I've also seen it where it can lead to groupthink. Mm. And that can be really risky, especially when there's a sort of technocratically dominant strain to that. So I think, you know, to us, like, I wish we were 10 times as big. And I think we could easily be 10 times as big. I think the world needs us to be 10 times as big. And we've set our organization up for scale. And so our biggest obstacle is really like, how do you raise the money to get there? And how do you persuade either philanthropies or, you know, over time, build a base of donors where you can really achieve the scale. Because like, you know, I mentioned this huge success we've had in, in Asia, tackling palm oil or rubber or pulp and paper, you know, those are all 50, $60 billion a year industries. The meat industry is a trillion dollar a year industry. Steel and aluminum are at similar scales. And so we need an order of magnitude greater size in order to really take them on. You mentioned, of course, people who are looking to make financial contributions or philanthropies that come your way. But for listeners out there who are who have drunk the Kool-Aid now after this conversation, how else can they get involved? So in addition to donating and joining our email list, which you can do on our, our homepage, I think the um, we do do volunteer, engage volunteers in a variety of ways and all over the world. So on our industrial decarbonization campaign all over the United States right now, we're recruiting volunteers to ask auto companies to use lower carbon or carbon-free materials like aluminum and steel and batteries. And we do very much inside-outside games. So we do like demonstrations. We also do interesting things where we work with students and they will go to companies that are recruiting on campus and say, hey, we don't want to work for you if you are causing outsized pollution and not taking serious efforts to address it. And that's been very influential with companies because they care about what their employees think. And many employees now, even for big legacy companies, they want to feel like they're doing something good. They want to feel like they're solving climate change. They're making the world a better place. And if they discover, oh, you know, GM is buying steel from super polluters unnecessarily and not investing sufficiently in green steel, you know, this is what's going to make a difference in electric vehicle world. And so that's been incredibly powerful. So we're doing on our decarbonization campaign, we have lots of work going on across the United States. Similarly, you know, I mentioned that that lightning demonstration that we did in New York. It was because we had a network of volunteers. So anyway, people want to like best way to connect with me personally, and I can pass you on to the right person is on LinkedIn. So I I write that's the main social media platform I use, Glenn Hurwitz on LinkedIn and happy to to connect. Uh, especially if you write a little message in the introduction request. So it stands out. I get a lot of requests, but, 
or, you know, I think that's, yeah, we really want to build our volunteer network. And that's not just true in the United States. We're doing a lot across Europe and in South America as well. So there's a lot of opportunities for people to get involved. I'll put links to all of this in the show notes as well. Excellent. Glenn, thanks so much for all the incredible work that you're doing and also for this conversation. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to another Climate Tech Podcast. It would mean a lot if you would subscribe, rate, and share this podcast. Get in touch anytime with tips and guest recommendations at hello at climatetechpod.com. Find me, Ryan Grant Little, on LinkedIn. I'll be back with another episode next week. Bye for now. This episode is supported by Grizzle, B2B content to create and capture demand. I first met Grizzle's founder, Tom Watley, five years ago at a conference in Dublin. I was so impressed that I signed a deal with him to do all my software company's content that same evening at the pub. Remember that, Tom? Um, kinda. And they're still doing it two years after we sold the company because the new owners love Grizzle as much as I do. If you sell B2B, book 30 minutes in Tom's calendar at grizzle.io slash climate. That's G-R-I-Z-Z-L-E dot I-O slash climate.